0: Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 8. We want to start in verse 16. After several healings, several uh, accounts given to us in Matthew 8, the Holy Ghost inspires Matthew, who is one of the original 12 apostles, disciples who became apostles, to make a very specific point. Matthew 8:16. it says, When the evening was come, they brought unto him, meaning Jesus, many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Now notice that phrase, he healed all that were sick. He healed all that were sick. Verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Well, let's go back to Isaiah's prophecy. And compare what Matthew eight sixteen and 17 is telling us with what the Word says. Isaiah chapter 53. Let's just start in verse 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, notice those two words, sorrows and grief. grief. The word sorrows is the word pain. It's translated pain other places in the Old Testament. The word grief is the word sickness, as it is translated in other places in the Old Testament. Now, folks, this seems to be another place. If you were here this morning, we ran into one where the translation has to be judged what I mean by that is any translation, every translation is good or is only as good as the translator's knowledge of the, the language first and foremost and then secondly their knowledge of the character and the nature of God. There are some places in the King James translation where the translators just seem to have bailed. They just seem to come to a place where the word identifies something that is just too far out there for them to accept. And this is one of those cases. This is one of those situations. They knew the words. They translated the word sorrow as, uh, into the word pain in other places in the Old Testament. They translated the word grief. The Hebrew word for grief as sickness in other places in the Old Testament. But here they just went completely off the rails. Now, don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourself. Find out what these words mean. Search and and research to see other places where they're translated, where this word is used and how it's translated in the Old Testament. But I'm going to go with the words that the original intent covered. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of pains and acquainted with sickness. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now folks, notice something in verse 3 where it says he's a man of sorrows or a man of pain and he's acquainted with sickness. I want you to notice in this, uh, this chapter 53 everybody agrees is the messianic chapter. It's the Old Testament definition of the atonement that the Savior, the Messiah would make. Nobody argues that fact. Everybody recognizes that this is what Jesus did or would do from Isaiah's point of view. What Jesus would do To bring redemption for mankind. So, here where it says he was a man of pains and acquainted with sickness, it doesn't mean that Jesus hurt. It doesn't mean that Jesus experienced pain in his earthly ministry. I'm not saying he didn't, but that's not what it's talking about. When it says he's a man of pains and acquainted with sickness, it's telling us that God's Messiah was intricately, intricately, (laughs) very closely, associated with pains and sickness it doesn't sugarcoat it and just tell us the good things about jesus it doesn't tell us what a bubbling personality he had because those are not the important things he must have had because people flocked to him kids came and wanted to be around him so he must have been fun in some respect but the messianic chapter the atonement chapter in all of scripture is identifying Jesus' close relationship with pains and sickness. Now most people, if you ask them what are they redeemed from or what Jesus has done for them, what did Jesus do for us on the cross, most of the church world will say he saved us from our sins. And that's true to a point. It's not the whole truth. It's not the entirety of the truth. And God inspired, I'm sorry, Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Ghost, writes these things to us. Why is he talking about pains and sickness before he talks about sin? See, redemption from sin or forgiveness from sin, most times, uh, most Christians will use the term forgiveness of sins when they're talking about salvation. And that's really not accurate. God didn't forgive our sins, he canceled them out, he removed them. But if the forgiveness of sins is the main issue, then why doesn't he lead with sin? Why does he talk about in several places what Jesus was associated with or what he was joined unto in becoming our sacrifice? He is despised and rejected of men, a man of pains and acquainted with sickness. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, here's that word sickness again, and carried our sorrows, here's that word pains. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Now this is the first time he starts talking about sin. He was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities you know why i think that this is this chapter is laid out the way that it is i know that god who knows the future better than we know the past he knew that there would be no argument about jesus paying the price for sin he knew looking down through the portals of time he knew that his people his children would not dispute the work that he did to forgive or redeem us from sin. And so there's more talked about in this chapter regarding sickness than there is sin, not because sickness, the payment for sickness or the benefit of divine health is more important than the forgiveness of sin or the removal of sin from our lives. It's not. But he knew where the argument was going to be. He knew where the resistance was going to be. He knew the translators were going to mess this up. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. With his stripes, we are healed. Now go back to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16 real quick. Let's remind ourselves of where we started. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. This turns out to be this verse 17 turns out to be a divine commentary on Isaiah 53. Here's the Holy Ghost giving us a record and preserving for us a record that in effect becomes or has become a commentary on Isaiah 53. Now as we said before, Isaiah 53 is the messianic chapter. It's the chapter that identifies what the Savior, the promised one, would do for mankind to bring us back to God. The Jews were certainly looking for that. They wanted that to to take place. But they wound up getting distracted and sidetracked by so many things that they failed to recognize the Messiah that they said they were looking for. But everything in this chapter of 53 of Isaiah, everything there has to do with the atonement. Now in the Old Testament, when God instituted the sacrifices, he went into great detail about how the sacrifices were to be made, particularly the blood sacrifices, He made a big deal and went into a lot of detail to identify the sacrifice that would be made once a year by the high priest on the day of atonement. The reason there was a day of atonement was because there was a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, the shedding of blood that was presented in Israel's stead. And God accepted that sacrifice of blood not once and for all, couldn't be an eternal work because the blood of animals and goats couldn't pay the price for man. But it would would count, it would serve for a one-year period of time. Now the Day of Atonement, in case anybody has any romantic ideas about how that was, the Day of Atonement was one of the bloodiest days you could possibly imagine. Because not only was the high priest instructed To handle the sacrifice for all of Israel. But people had to make their own sacrifices too. And so these sacrifice days. That God instituted and gave to Israel to keep. It was all about blood. So much so. That when Jesus talked about. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood. A lot of the disciples left him. But all throughout the Old Testament, once the animal sacrifices were instituted, God really started it in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve fell. He showed them how to make a sacrifice. We know that by the uh, the next chapter in Genesis where it tells us about Cain and Abel. You remember how that Abel brought a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice that was acceptable unto God. Cain brought a vegetable sacrifice. He was a farmer so he brought the works of his hands and god didn't accept it he didn't accept his sacrifice well cain got so upset that he killed his brother and the language indicates that he sacrificed his brother it was kind of like him showing his anger at god you have to have the shedding of blood okay well i'll give you shedding of blood and he offered his brother well how did cain and abel know anything about sacrifices There's nothing in the scripture that tells us from the time of Adam and Eve falling and sin coming into the the earth until the point where where Cain and Abel are offering sacrifices. There's not one word said about anything. So since the sacrifice is made by man, but at the instruction of God, there had to be some place in between the fall and Cain and Abel's story where sacrifices would be made it's possible that God showed Adam and Eve how to make the animal sacrifice when he was fashioning skins for them to wear his clothes. It's possible. So then when Moses comes along and God delivers the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt for the first time through the giving of the law, God's commandments and God's expectations of sacrifice was codified it was put down it was written and the the books that were written were kept so that future generations would know and understand what the sacrifice was all about and when they were supposed to make them so when Matthew talks about the sacrifice that Jesus would make when Matthew talks about the fulfillment of the atonement Of the Old Covenant. The Old Testament. When he begins to raise those points. That's where the church. Modern day church. Got into a fight. Because there's a lot of the modern day church. That says well God can heal. Certainly he's all powerful. He has the ability to heal. But is healing really in the atonement. Now the only argument. That that group of people has. When faced with the scriptures that. Isaiah 53, 4, and 5, give us. The first thing they'll do is they'll say, well, that doesn't mean physical healing. By his stripes we were healed means he healed us spiritually. But folks, spiritual healing is not a Bible term. There's no place in the scripture that identifies in any way whatsoever, even hints in any way whatsoever that God healed us spiritually. The Bible says that through the work of Jesus, the sacrifice and the shedding of Jesus' blood and his resurrection. It says that brings us to a place that the New Testament calls being born again. Well, the Old Testament tells us what the born again experience is like. It says, and Isaiah is the one that tells us. Isaiah said, quoted God to say, I will take out the stony heart from among them and give them a heart of flesh a new heart a new spirit will i put within them and then i'll put my spirit in them well god didn't heal your spirit he he replaced it he took one out and put another one in now i don't know how that works i don't even know how that would be possible but god said that's how it works So there's no such thing in scripture as spiritual healing. Now, some people will point to Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where Jesus said, I'm anointed of the Holy Ghost to heal the brokenhearted. And they'll say, well, see, there you go. He sent to heal our broken hearts. Well, folks, that's really not talking about hurt feelings. The brokenheartedness is a breach in spirit. In other words it's telling us that when man disobeyed God when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden of Eden and ate of the fruit of the tree that they were forbidden to eat it tells us at that point man died spiritually just as God warned don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil for in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. Well it couldn't have been talking about physical death because Adam didn't die for 930 years more. Well, then what death is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual death. Romans 5, 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam, sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death is passed upon every man. It's the law of sin and death that holds us mount. It's the law of sin and death that keeps somebody from being redeemed in the greatest possible way that Satan can do it. So there's really no such thing in the Bible. Now, you can make up your own terms if you want to, but there's really no such thing in the Bible as spiritual healing. If somebody needs healing from a broken heart or what they're talking about is emotions, well, that comes very simply from renewing your mind to the truth of the Word. I'm not saying it's not a serious issue because so much of the church world is motivated and and led by their emotions. But God has instructed us to be transformed from the world's way of doing things by the renewing of our minds. Now Matthew, inspired by the Holy Ghost, is telling us what the phrase, and by his stripes we were healed, is all about. And so he takes us back to the atonement chapter. He takes us back to the messianic chapter. He takes us back to the the one place where the Old Testament, the most concise place, where in the Old Testament it's identified what he would do and what would be the benefit for us. And even though the translators bailed out on the meaning of the words, we have enough information so that we can see what is being spoken of. The Holy Ghost seemed to think it was physical healing because of Matthew 8:16 and 17. Now, I know that's not good enough for a lot of the church, but that's good enough for me. And so the divine commentary shows us not just healing. If he had showed us just healing, that would have been a marvelous thing. But he's not just showing us healing alone. Because when he says, Jesus healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which Isaiah the prophet said, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. When he says that, It's showing us what the atonement was all about. It's showing us that the atonement, that which was prophesied about Jesus, that which was prophesied in saying by his stripes we were healed. That fulfillment is not just the fact that people were healed. If that's all it was, that would have been great. But it goes further than that. Since the atonement was for everybody... Healing had to be too. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and he healed all that were sick, that or so that it might be fulfilled, which Isaiah the prophet said, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. See, folks, if healing is for all, it, well, let's said it this way, if healing is a part of the atonement, Which if it's not, we've got some pages to tear out of the Bible. But if healing is part of the atonement, then healing has to be for everybody. There are five times in the four Gospels where it tells us that all the people that were there in that particular occasion were healed. Five different places in the Gospels where it tells us in effect, just like here in Matthew chapter 8, he healed all that were sick. He healed all that were sick. He healed all that were sick. Let's go back to Isaiah 53 and pick up where we were. We'll start again with verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Now notice that phrase, he was cut off out of the land of the living. That's a, um, a Levitical term. It's a term that's used in Leviticus, particularly on the day of atonement. Now, the way that this worked is that the priest would bring to the high priest two goats or two lambs. One was to be sacrificed, but the other was to be what's called the scapegoat. Lots were cast when both of the animals were inspected to see that there was no spot or blemish on them. Lots were cast. One of them then was chosen by the casting of the lots to be the scapegoat, the other chosen to be the sacrifice. Now we know a lot about the sacrifice. We know how the animal's blood was shed and how it was splashed up on the the altar, how the body was burned after the blood was drained off. But the scapegoat, nobody pays that much attention to. But that was just as important, in some ways maybe more important, than the shedding of the blood of the other animal. The scapegoat went like this. They brought it to the high priest. And he would lay his hands on the head of that that goat. And he would pronounce all the curses that God in the Old Testament said would come upon the people through disobedience. He would name every sin that God named in the Old Testament. He would place, symbolically, he would place, because through the laying on of his hands, he would place those sins on the scapegoat. And then once that happened, there was a very specific instruction given by God on what to do with that goat. He was to be led into the wilderness to a place that was cut off from the land of the living. Now Jesus... As the atoner, uh, making the atonement, as our redeemer, Jesus had to cover both sides of it. His blood had to be shed on the sacrifice side. But he also had to fulfill the work of the scapegoat. Or else we don't have a complete redemption. But thank God we do. So here where it says Jesus was cut off, Jesus in fulfilling the Old Testament instruction, where he was cut off from the land of the living, that means he had to go to the place of the spiritually dead. Now, something happened to Jesus in the three days between him hanging on the cross and expiring and him being raised and resurrected from the dead. He had to be somewhere. Where is he? Isaiah said that he was in the land, the land cut off from the living. There's a, a time where Jesus told, in Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 16, I believe it is, where Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. They both died. The rich man went to hell, the place of the spiritually dead. And Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, which Jesus called paradise. You remember when he hung on the cross between the two thieves One of the thieves mocked him and said, if you are the son of God, call the angels and get us down from here. And the other rebuked him. And he said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Jesus said to to that thief on the cross, he said, I say unto you this day, you shall be with me in paradise. Now the King James punctuation, the translation is correct, but the King James punctuation is written as if he said, today you shall be with me in paradise. But he wasn't in paradise that day. He wasn't in paradise until three days later. Now when the rich man sees afar off and sees Lazarus in his bosom, in Abraham's bosom, he inquires of Abraham to have Lazarus dip dip the tip of his finger in water and cool his tongue. And Abraham very simply says, you can't go from your side to our side. That's not work that Lazarus would do anyway, but he can't get to you. And so his request was rejected. Now, if Abraham's bosom was paradise, then in no way could it qualify as a land cut off from the living. The only thing that could fulfill that is if Jesus joined the spiritually dead in the bottom place of hell. Now, folks, if Jesus is just spending a couple of hours on the cross and it, everything happened real quickly, if Jesus is just enduring a beating that was savage, it was horrible, I don't mean to make light of it in any way whatsoever, but if the horrible nature of the beating And the few hours that he spent on the cross, and remember, he died quicker on the cross than either of the two thieves. They had to break the legs of the other guys, but they didn't, Jesus, because he was already dead. So if Jesus is just experiencing excruciating, mind-boggling pain through the beating he took in Pilate's court and hanging on the cross, then why is he sweating great drops of blood in Gethsemane? Do You remember that story, how that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he told his disciples a little bit of what was going on, and then he went to Gethsemane to pray. The disciples couldn't even stay awake for an hour. But it says Jesus was in agony, and as a result, he sweat great drops of blood. Now, medical science tells us that there is no confirmed case of anybody that has sweat blood like that through their pores that has lived. That doesn't necessarily mean nobody could live through it, but there's no medical records of it in any of the annals of the history of medical science. If Jesus is facing just what we know of the beatings and the time on the cross, the short time on the cross, respectively, then why is he in such agony? But if, on the other hand, he's not going to paradise, he's going to pay the price for the sin and death that came in the world through Adam's sin. I can see that causing, in to a lot greater degree, the sweating drops of blood. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus, in that lowest, lowest part of hell, When it looked like he was cut off from the land of the living, the life of God came back in him. And he was literally born again. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus literally was born again. God put a new spirit in him. And then he put the Holy Spirit back in him. So here where it says he was cut off from the land of the living. It's a clue that tells us a little bit about where Jesus went for those three days and nights. Now after those three days and nights, Jesus first went into Abraham's bosom. As Ephesians tells us, he led captivity captive. These Old Testament saints that died in faith looking for the Messiah to come. Of which Jesus told us that the thief, one of the thieves that was crucified with him would be there too. He led captivity captive. He emptied out Abraham's bosom. And he took them with him to heaven to stand before the Father. When the Bible says that Jesus was the firstborn of many brethren. If he didn't have the same born again experience as us. Then why is the Bible identifying us with him in that respect? He was the firstborn among many brethren. He was the first one to be born again. And if his spirit had been made sin, if God had laid on him the iniquity of us all, as the scripture says, then there's no way he could enter back into the presence of God without being made righteous through this new birth. Now, folks, these are atonement facts These are things that had to be done and had to be carried out if Jesus was going to fulfill the prophecy that the Old Testament said that he would. Now, if Jesus didn't do everything that was prophesied in the Old Testament, then we've got a problem. Because some part of the Old Testament is not true. And again, we have pages to tear out of our Bibles. Brother Hagin used to tell the joke about the little boy... That came to church one sunday morning after church was over the pastor was shaking hands with everybody as they left and he noticed that he had his bible in his hands but it was real real thin and so he pointed it out and he said son what do you got there and he opened it up he said it's my bible and there were no pages on the inside he said well what are you doing with just the cover of your bible And he said, I've torn out all the pages of the things that you said didn't belong to us. And unfortunately, a lot of times people are living that way. They don't know it, but they are nonetheless. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. Was he stricken? And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. This word death is in the plural. Look that up for yourself too. When it says he was with the rich in his death. Now he's talking about two deaths. We know that he was taken by Joseph of Arimathea. That he petitioned Pilate. And Pilate said he could have his body. And so he was laid in a rich man's tomb. But since the word death is in the plural. What other death is there? Well as we said before there's physical death. And there's spiritual death. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? Where was the rich man? He was in the lowest part of hell. The rich is usually a type that's used of people that trust in their own riches rather than depend on God. And the implication is through their wickedness they would fail to to attain to Abraham's bosom. So when Jesus was made with the rich in his death's is talking about he was in the place of the spiritually dead. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his deaths. Because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Now I want you to notice the, comment, the connection between bruising him. And the word Sickness. The scripture would more accurately be identified and translated. And by the scripture I mean Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we were healed. That word stripes is literally the word bruise, And it's a technical term. Dr. Robert Young explained in his little book that's out of print. To the Bible interpretation. You can find an excerpt of it. A couple of chapters of it. In a Young's analytical concordance. But I haven't been able to find. Brother Hagen said he had one at one time. And he lost it. Got away from him. As books will sometimes do. And he never found a, another one. A copy of it. And I've never been able to find one either. People chant, uh, run up on this. Abbreviated version in Young's concordance. And they think they found it but it's a real thick book, according to what Brother Hagin said. And anyway, he said Dr. Young identified, and this is the same thing that uh, T.J. McCrossin included in his book, Healing, bodily healing in the atonement. There's a Hebrew word that would be very specific and would be required to, to use that would imply or convey to us the idea of stripes on Jesus' back. But the word that was used by the Holy Ghost is the word bruise, which means there was no way to distinguish. In order to use that word, there would be no way for anybody to to be able to distinguish between one mark and another. He even got so specific, Dr. McCrossan even got so specific as to say if there was one thirty-second of an inch of flesh left between any two marks, then the language would require a word that means stripes. But the fact that the word bruised is used rather than stripes is an indication to us of the severity of Jesus' back being beaten. His back was just one piece of flesh with hunks of meat pulled out that that little whip that the Roman soldiers used. It was a leather whip. It had a handle and and several leather straps that came out of the handle. And embedded in that handle, handle was pieces of bone and stones and little pellets of iron. Created in such a way that when it came down on, the, on Jesus' back, he certainly wasn't the only one that it was used on. But when the, this whip came down on Jesus' back, it would embed into his flesh. And then when they yanked it out, it would pull out hunks of flesh. Oftentimes people would die from these beatings. So where it says that the Lord was pleased to bruise Jesus, It was according to God's plan. It was the cost that Jesus well knew would have to be paid. I believe that this kind of knowledge is the reason that Jesus was sweating drops of blood in Gethsemane. He knew what was coming. He knew what had to be done. And folks, he had to know. He had to be able to go into this thing with his eyes wide open. There had to be no hidden elements of this for jesus to be able to be a worthy sacrifice for us he knew everything that was going to happen he knew what the requirement or the payment was going to have to be and he still chose to hang on the cross he said to himself or he said himself while he was on the cross that if he wanted to he could call 12 legions of angels to get him down Well, that must mean he didn't want to. Why didn't he want to? Because he knew that it was the only way to redeem you and me. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. This phrase in verse 10 literally means, and look this up for yourself. Don't take my word for it. But this phrase literally means God made him sick. And again, that doesn't mean he had cancer when he was hanging on the cross. It means God made him the substitute not only for sin, but for sickness and disease as well. This is in the atonement chapter, folks. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief or put him to sickness. He has made him sick, literally Hebrew. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What was the pleasure of the Lord? For Jesus to pay the price for all of these things so that you and I could be redeemed. There was no reason whatsoever for Jesus to go through this agony and these terrible things, except for the fact that he loved you and I enough to take it it on himself. Now, these are things, particularly when it comes to forgiveness of sins, nobody would argue, reading these scriptures, reading Isaiah 53:5, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Nobody argues the sin part, do they? Everybody recognizes that Jesus paid the price for sin, that he shed his blood for sin or for the remission of sins, and that's certainly true. But that's not all the chapter covers. That's not all the work of Jesus covered itself. Turn with me to Psalm 107, please. Psalm 107, I'm going to start in verse 17. It says, Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. Now, the psalmist is not just saying anybody that sins is an idiot. There might be a lot of situations where our sin is because we are idiots. That it is because we're fools. But it's simply saying this. It's simply saying that healing, which will be spoken of in the next couple of verses, is a result, or I'm sorry, I should say sickness, is a result of sin and transgression. It's saying the same thing. As Paul said in Romans 5, 12, by one man's sin, death entered the world by sin. Here it says, sin is the root cause of sickness. Now that doesn't mean it's individual sin. That doesn't mean it's personal sin. Their soul of heart all all manner of meat, and they draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saves them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. Look at verse 22. And let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. So what is this passage of scripture telling us? It's telling us that sin, original sin, is the cause of sickness and disease. And it tells us that even if an individual has brought about their own destruction, when they cry out to God, God hears and answers them. But there's also another implication here. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. There's another part of this that we need to point out, and that is the healing and the deliverance may not always come instantly. The psalmist says in the next verse, verse 21, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness. Now notice verse 22. Verse 22 is talking about the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why is it a sacrifice? Because it doesn't happen instantly. It might not be overnight. But the word of God is the power of God to heal. Now you may remember in John chapter 5 where Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda. He's the guy that said he didn't have anybody that was helping him get into the water and he was too slow to get there as soon as the, the angel touched the water. You remember the story. Jesus finds him again in the, in the temple several days later and he says to him, go and sin no more lest the worst thing come upon you. That might be an implication that Jesus is saying your personal sin was involved in this. Or he could just be using a general term and identifying that sin opens the door to sickness and tragedy and even worse things than what he had experienced. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that whatever his involvement was, whether it was personal sin or not, it didn't disqualify him from God's healing mercy. Now I want you to look with me over to James chapter 5. We'll close with this. Verse 14, he says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Folks, please understand that the implication is there should not be any sick people in church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ or the family of God should be free from sickness and disease. James says it by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost so casually that it's easy for us to miss. But he asked the question inspired by the Holy Ghost in such a way that it implies there shouldn't be anybody that's sick in the congregation of God, among the people of God. But if there are, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, And the prayer of faith shall heal the sick. This word save is the word sozo. It means to rescue, deliver, make safe, make sound, and to heal. Well, being saved from sickness is healing, isn't it? That's what healing does is it saves us from sickness. The prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. Now, notice the last part of verse 15. And if, if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him if he's committed sins they shall be forgiven him in other words he's saying if somebody's sick because of their own wrongdoing there's forgiveness for that and the reason that he speaks of that forgiveness is to let us know that being sick because of your own actions because of your own sins even that doesn't disqualify you from receiving the power of God to heal your body He says, if he's committed sins, which means not all sickness is a result of uh, the individual's sin. It couldn't be. But even if it is in, in a particular case, it doesn't disqualify them for the healing mercy of God. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their distresses. Folks, healing is without a doubt part of the atonement. Without a doubt, It's part of what Jesus shed his blood for, without a doubt. It's part of the land of promised blessings that God made to each and every one of us. Jesus healed all that were sick to fulfill the atonement as described and identified by Isaiah the prophet. He healed all that were sick. Folks, if we just take hold of the word, it's really not hard to talk God into keeping his word. It's really not hard for God to honor what he said he would do in his word. And as Paul told us in Romans one i I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. There's that word sozo again. It's an all-inclusive term. To rescue, deliver, to make safe, make sound, and to make whole. It's the power of God to do all of those things. F.F. Bosworth, who was a great healing evangelist, when when he had returned to the ministry, he got out of the ministry for a little while, and then when the healing revival started, he joined up with William Branham. He would do the daytime teachings on faith and healing. And then Branham would come in at night and operate in the prophet's office or prophet's ministry. And Bosworth didn't have anything special from the Lord like a healing anointing, at least by his own admission. But he got so many results. He got hundreds of thousands of people healed just by hearing the word of God preached and taught. God sent his word and healed us. And delivered us from our destructions. We may not see it right away. We may have to offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Which is to praise God for the answer that we don't yet see it. And don't yet feel in our bodies. But the instruction to being healed by the word. Is to praise God for the goodness that he's shown to mankind. And make the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Which is the same thing James was talking about in chapter 1. When he said, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Count it all joy when you're faced with afflictions. Count it all joy when you're under attack of the devil. Because the word of God and God's care for you is greater than anything he can ever throw up against you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your plan of redemption. We thank you that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes we were healed. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying the awful price, the terrible price that was necessary to redeem us to our Father. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for caring about us and loving us enough to finish every part of the penalty and the punishment that was necessary to redeem us to the Father. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you for your sacrifice for us. Father, we magnify you for the great work that has been done. And we declare that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death, which encompasses every sickness and every disease. We will not imagine vain things against the Lord, for he has made an utter end of affliction. Sickness shall not rise again the second time. We bless you, Holy Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Healing is ours. God bless you, folks. Have a great week.